This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's been nearly 35 years since the AIDS epidemic emerged. And finally, we can say with some certainty that a tide has been turned in battling this global health challenge. Well, there is some really encouraging reports coming out of this year's annual Global HIV AIDS Conference in Vancouver. Researchers point to the news that early intervention with the antiretroviral treatment can delay HIV symptoms indefinitely and new evidence that long-term exposure to the treatment isn't as harmful to vital organs, health such as the heart and kidney, as we had previously thought. So that is incredibly encouraging. That is really good. And they really are looking at this as a treatable chronic condition in many cases, uh, but But of course, it must be managed. And as we know, it's sometimes difficult to get patients to comply with drug protocol. So it's vital for not just the patients, but for the risk of co-infection as well. Indeed, Mark, there are an estimated 50,000 newly diagnosed people infected with HIV in this country alone. Embedding HIV testing and routine preventive care is a evidence-based, very effective way to help patients know their status early and take those appropriate steps to avail themselves of treatment. It's great work being done uh, to contain HIV AIDS in Africa really dominated this year's discussion. Margaret, many of the millions who have died uh, were from the African continent, and U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon announced that they were on track to get Africa's 15 million HIV-positive patients on the antiretroviral treatment by the end of 2015, and that will go a long way towards curbing this pandemic. Some scientists at the conference were predicting that with all of these uh, effective containment and treatment programs in place, HIV-AIDS, as we know it, could be over by 2030. Wow. That's That would be remarkable that we have witnessed so many incredible uh, scientific and medical and social breakthroughs. Uh, from working on this problem for over three decades, but still much more work to do. Our guest today is a physician with plenty of work to do. Dr. Stephen J. Stack is president of the American Medical Association, the chief lobbying organization representing physicians and medical students. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. Uh, But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, you can email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Stephen J. Stack in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Medicare has hit a milestone, 50 years in business, providing access to health coverage for the nation's seniors, 65 and over. A quick snapshot of the popular program shows, on average, seniors are healthier, living longer and spending less time in the hospital than their earlier counterparts. And hospitals, as well as providers, are being incentivized to keep their patients healthier. And according to a recent study conducted by Yale physician Dr. Harlan Krummeltz, there has been a vast improvement in care interventions over these past 15 years, interventions he calls remarkable and even jaw-dropping. The researchers looked at the experience of 60 million older Americans covered by Medicare between 1999 and 2013 and found mortality rates dropped steadily during that time and people were much less likely to end up in the hospital. Krumpel says if rates had stayed the same in 2013 as they had been in 1999, we would have seen 3.5 million more hospitalizations, saying that people who were being hospitalized had much better outcomes after the hospitalization, and the cost of that care had gone down as well. 
The study does note the biggest threat to Medicare solvency is the dramatic increase in the cost of pharmaceutical drugs. And on that note, we now have a cure for hepatitis C, a virus that threatens to destroy patients' livers. Roughly 3 million Americans are living with hep C. Many can't afford the treatment because it's simply too expensive. A recent analysis has shown a spike in hep C infections due to lack of access to the expensive cure, about $80,000 per person. And Americans overall? are feeling better. In a survey published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, half a million Americans polled said they were feeling better in the age of Obamacare than prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Compared with the pre-ACA trend, fewer Americans said they were in fair or poor health and are reporting fewer days in which their activity is limited by poor health. And having trouble achieving fitness success at the gym, why not try tapping into your natural hunter-gatherer instincts? A fitness movement sweeping through Europe is washing up on these shores with a direct link to our homo sapien ancestry. The Move Nat movement suggests you skip the gym and go right to the hiking trail. Lift some boulders instead of dead weights. Climb over rocks instead of using the Stairmaster. Natural movement is at the heart of MoveNat, an international fitness system that reclaims hunter-gatherer skills to achieve strength, flexibility, and power. Of course, being chased by a saber-toothed tiger will certainly get you moving faster now, won't it? I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Stephen J. Stack, the 170th president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Stack is a board-certified emergency physician, having served as medical director of multiple emergency departments in Kentucky and Tennessee. He has also served the American Medical Association's board of trustees in several capacities, including as its board chair and chair of the compensation committee. Dr. Stack has a special focus on health information technology, having served on several AMA advisory committees to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. He earned his medical degree from Ohio State University. Dr. Stack, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And, you know, the mission of the American Medical Association is to promote the art and science of medicine for the betterment of public health and also to advance the interest of physicians and their patients. And certainly one major activity of the American Medical Association is uh, as a lobbying organization for the nation's physicians. And there's been so much uh, change and transformation going on out of Washington. And can you tell our listeners uh, what you uh, see as the most pressing issue for physicians and patients alike uh, as you take on the mantle of the presidency of the American Medical Association? Well, I would say that the health system is in a remarkable period of flux and transformation. We, we all are committed to uh, providing high-quality care uh, at an affordable cost for patients. We undertook a journey a few years ago to um, create a new strategic vision for the work we do at the AMA. And in that, we, we have undertaken three major projects. And in this period of flux and transformation, uh, we find that physicians face a, a regulatory tsunami in, in which they feel uh, challenged and unsupported uh, all too often. And so the AMA is undertaking an enormous body of work to enhance and improve physician satisfaction and practice sustainability. Uh, and to that end, we've undertaken multiple research projects in partnership with the RAND Corporation and are trying to better understand those things that support physicians in the provision of high quality and affordable care for patients. And then we have two other major areas, uh, taking on the most difficult of chronic health conditions in the United States, prediabetes and hypertension, 
we have an epidemic of patients who are, are heading towards type 2 diabetes, coupled with hypertension, of which there's over 70 million people plus the nearly 90 million people with prediabetes. So those two conditions alone cost over a half trillion dollars a year to the U.S. health system. And if we can make a dent in that through partnerships that we have with the CDC, YMCA of America, Johns Hopkins University, and others, we are very hopeful we will try to find a way to catalyze change so that patients live healthier, happier lives. And in this period of incredible flux in the healthcare system, it's essential that the new physicians of tomorrow have the knowledge and skills necessary to thrive and succeed in a way that helps them provide the best quality care for patients. And to this end, the AMA created a consortium of 11 medical schools in the United States and have funded $11 million over a five-year period for these 11 schools to create a learning consortium to radically reform medical education and to create the medical school of the future, where the students will emerge physicians with an enhanced skill set that enables them to be effective leaders and effective advocates and effective providers of health care uh, for their patients. Well, Dr. Stack, when I think about the regulatory tsunami, it strikes me that each of those three are significantly impacted by the way practices are organized. And I know that the AMA recently conducted a survey of the nation's medical providers and found that a majority of physicians still work in small practices. What, what does the data show you about the typical configuration of the work environments of the nation's physicians? And what shifts do you expect to see in the way practices are structured? So the AMA's newly released data show that the growth in hospital ownership has been slower than commonly thought Mm -hmm. and that most physicians still provide care for patients in small practices. So we found that the number of physicians in small practices remained the majority at about 61%. On the other side of this, we found that the share of physicians who worked directly for a hospital or in practices that had at least some hospital ownership increased modestly from 29% in 2012 to 33% in 2014. So clearly there is a trend towards increasing physician um, employment by hospitals, but it is not the uh, falling off the cliff experience, Mm -hmm. at least in the research that we undertook and the the findings we have. So just this past June released um, for all physicians in the United States a series of 16 modules uh, called Steps Forward. And AMA Steps Forward can be found at, at www.stepsforward.org. And it's a free online series of proven solutions that have been developed by physicians for physicians covering a number of things, how to make your office practice more efficient, how to uh, manage patient needs and flow, how to select, and then how to implement an electronic health record. Uh, we have currently a... Um, competitive uh, process now where people submit ideas via that website uh, for solutions to challenging clinical problems. And we hope to fund and and grant five or more people uh, who come up with novel solutions uh, to help us create some new modules Mm -hmm. uh, to further help physicians. All of this takes place in the context of us continuing our advocacy, the incredible crush and burden of regulatory Uh, difficulties with ICD-10 implementation, the electronic health record meaningful use. You referenced uh, at the beginning my participation in moderation of a panel to try to give voice uh, from the grassroots to physician concerns about the current state of electronic health records in the federal government's meaningful use program. So like whack-a-mole, no sooner do you try to address or solve one problem than five others spring up in its place. 
in Dr. Stack, certainly there must be a lot of consternation about the, the way practices are compensated. And we've entered the era of moving from the fee-for-service model to uh, compensation for quality and not, uh, and not quantity. And we see uh, the rise of accountable care organizations and patient-centered medical homes and uh, more of a focus on uh, care coordination. Um, can you tell our listeners uh, uh, how these emerging approaches are impacting uh, the physician practices? These sorts of innovative payment and delivery models are being tested and implemented across the country in a lot of different settings. Um, first, I'd say it's our belief that in order for these to be successful and sustainable over the long term, it's going to take the commitment of all the stakeholders or else it's just not going to be sustainable. So we need to work in partnership to make them work. Mm-hmm. In our study, we found three key things. Physicians had actually seen some positive effects from the models. Doctors have said that they actually like the concept. When the model is fair and reasonable, they like being mm-hmm. paid to help keep patients healthy, and it affirms their commitment to keeping patients well. I also found, though, that uh, though they want to embrace these new payment models, they require an infrastructure and they require adequate resources, that's both financial and in human resources, in order to uh, achieve these goals, but that the current programs frequently do not provide those resources. So they're underfunded on the front end and they are under-resourced and there's inadequate information provided to the physicians, so it's not possible for them to succeed. Hmm. And then the final thing I would say is that uh, one physician summed it all up that it's like there's so much lack of coordination across these mm. that he said that it was like 50 people all mm-hmm. shouting their priorities to you at the same time mm-hmm. and trying to make rational sense out of that. So we need to streamline and harmonize quality metrics. We need to make sure that in this massive data where there's really too much of it, we need to make sure that there is timely, accurate, and actionable data. And we need to make sure that these new payment and delivery models provide physicians and their practices the resources, like I said, both financial and human, in order to make them successful. Well, Dr. Stack, you're certainly clearly on the side of being a fan of the potential of health IT, but you have a lot of concerns about the burden, again, as you've spoken to in other domains. Now, you conducted a recent town hall meeting called Cutting the Red Tape, where you certainly heard a number of concerns from providers about this issue. I understand the AMA has asked uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, to push back on meaningful use stage three. Share this with our listeners. What, What does this mean in short? Most physicians strongly believe that current and proposed federal regulations threaten to turn the promise of EHRs into a pipe dream. Uh, The government requirements related to EHR technology have interfered with face-to-face discussions with patients. They've created new costs that divert resources away from patient care improvements. Uh, The much-anticipated benefits of being able to share important patient health information electronically among and between providers in different settings has gone utterly unfulfilled. In another landmark study, physicians found electronic health records to be the current most frustrating and profound obstacle to providing quality patient care. It has profoundly impacted the way they organize their work, um, and it's resulted in a lot of physician uh, dissatisfaction, emotional fatigue. Having said that, one of my other favorite quotes is referred to physicians as digital omnivores. We are some of the fastest and most widespread adopters of, of new and early technologies, such as smartphones and tablet computers 
um, things like advanced imaging, medical genomic advances and innovations, treatments. So we have asked the administration to hold off on the final stage of the Meaningful Use Program because the jump between stages one and two has already been so substantial, and this jump to stage three is even more significant. And so even though so many of those physicians at the town hall in Atlanta commented that they had adopted one person, I think it was 1984, they had first adopted an electronic health record. That is more than 20 years before the federal government created the Meaningful Use Program. Hmm. There's another person who bought a major commercial vendor electronic health record in 2006, and yet these people are struggling to work within the current construct of meaningful use in the current world of EHRs. One of those people even wrote their own personal electronic health record uh, himself, and he's now reverted back to it and is taking a 1% penalty from the government because the federal government's program and the EHRs have not supported the care he needs to provide, but his own uh, software helped him to be far more efficient and effective for his patients. So there's always the risk of sounding overly negative. There is no doubt that we need to move forward with effective and well-done health IT. We have to take this massive one-fifth of the economy that manages so much information for the betterment of patients and organize it in a more effective way that enables us to better learn from it and to better share it when it's appropriate between um, physicians and other clinicians and our patients. And, and so one of the reasons we're doing town halls like the one we did in Atlanta is to try to get the grassroots physician the opportunity to share firsthand just how constructively engaged they have been, the incredible amount of time, uh, effort, and money they have invested trying to make this succeed, and why it's so important for policymakers and others to hear their concerns and, and not dismiss them. We're speaking today with Dr. Stephen J. Stack, the 178th president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Stack is a board-certified emergency physician. Dr. Stack has a special focus on health information technology. So, you know, I do want to pull the thread a, l a little more on this because I'm sure you've got some sort of digital natives, the younger practitioners coming out who might be uh, the uptake on uh, the use of technology might might be a little different than those who've who've uh, uh, been in practice for longer. You also said earlier that you were trying to think about the next generation of uh, providers and have 11 medical schools working on that and wonder how much technology is going to loom in that sort of new new training. Right now, there's more than 80% of physicians in the United States using electronic health hmm. records. Um, kudos for that. I yeah. mean, it, we, we've adopted these tools, and now we need to find ways to make them work. So at this point now, we think that the federal government should focus on prioritizing all of its efforts to interoperability, to making these digital silos, which we have sadly created, actually interconnect and communicate with each other so that we have the data in different sites of service for our patients. We also think that technological innovation will be enhanced if the regulations uh, from the federal government are reduced so that there are fewer check-the-box activities and the vendors for electronic health records and the physicians and hospitals are now empowered to work together to make those systems serve them in the way they need to. We want to make sure that uh, patients are informed because only by being informed can they be as effective in the, in the management of their own health and health care needs 
we don't think that some of the rigidly mandated ways that we've been told we must structure those data through patient portals and other things are either what some of our patients are asking for or are being produced by vendors in a way that is usable and easy for patients and physicians. So we really want to make those things better. And we think at this point, allowing natural innovation to occur would be a far better mechanism for that. In, in our medical education work, we do have um, some schools who are working very specifically to use real patient data that is de-identified to run simulated healthcare environments where the students manage and treat uh, virtual patients, if you will, using real data and learn how to most effectively make use of electronic health record technology. Health IT is far bigger than just electronic health records. Mm -hmm. and we often confuse or conflate the two. So with wearables like Fitbits and with smartphones and with mobile apps and other devices that collect patient-generated data, there is an enormous tidal wave of change ahead where we will have this incredible influx of data, and we're going to have to find ways to find among that massive amount of data what is actually useful and what helps uh, patients and physicians work together to provide better care. But we're committed to doing that, mm -hmm. and, and we look forward to that journey. We have to be very careful. Just within the last two weeks, there was a breach affecting maybe 4.5 million patients whose health records were compromised, electronic mm -hmm. health records. Um, the Office of Personnel Management for the federal government had, was it 22 million people right. whose yeah. data was compromised? Probably all of us. <laughs> yeah. And so for all of us who have to have 15 passwords changed every three weeks, the data is incredibly secure from those of us who need it, but apparently not <laughs> secure from those who shouldn't have access to it. So we've got to find a rational way to make that safer. I'm going to uh, shift just a little bit to um, say that I think the AMA and your members probably count on you for this is not shy about butting heads with policymakers on issues that are of importance to your members and to the organization. And a recent issue was the ongoing SGR formula, the sustainable growth uh, issue, which was finally resolved after more than a decade. So congratulations for that. Um, and another such issue is the switch to the ICD-10 codes for medical billing, which I think it's safe to say you've been uh, actively uh, lobbying against for quite some time, successfully winning a delay last year for the planned start date. But this year, I understand the AMA has come to an agreement with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, choosing to recommend compliance with this year's October 1 start date. Tell us a little bit about the AMA's reason, both for the pushback, also the, the nature of the compromise that you were able to achieve with CMS. I've had the real privilege to work with physicians, other participants in the healthcare system, and, and policymakers, they're committed civil servants trying to do the best they can. None of this is ever personal. This is all about the issues and differences of opinion and trying to get most effectively to an outcome I think most of us share. Mm -hmm. So ICD-10 is a good example of this. The AMA has raised concerns that there is an inordinate amount of detail and complexity. The, the code set explodes by over 400%. And, and there are certain elements of the detail in there that make it a particularly challenging paradigm shift for how we're going to have to document certain things. The um, collaboration we've had with CMS, which, which I think is a wonderful example of, of how policymakers and the profession can work together, acknowledges that there's this complexity. And for a period of time, for the, the first year of the implementation, um, the physicians will still be required to use the new code set and to code um, in the right family of codes, but, but that enhanced specificity where most people do acknowledge there's a lot of complexity and uncertainty 
will not in and of itself be a reason to deny a claim. So if you see a physician and you have chest pain, we still have to document you have chest pain. We have to code that correctly that you have chest pain. But we may not have to put that you have acute chest pain secondary to chronic hypertension, secondary to water skiing um, after fell off a ladder. So that's the obscene kind of examples that people come up linking together bizarre mm-hmm. circumstance. And so over the first 12 months of this, we'll continue to partner and work with CMS and with the private payer community to try to find what is a good and new reasonable steady state, but not drown out physician practices uh, with economic distress because of denied claims, which would make it difficult for them to keep their doors open and care for patients. And so I think it's a wonderful partnership we've had, and uh, we hope and will strive mightily to try to make that transition this October 1st as smooth as possible uh, for everybody involved. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen J. Stack, president of the American Medical Association. You can follow their work by going to ama-assn.org, or you can follow him on Twitter at Stephen Stack, MD. Dr. Stack, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. It's been a great privilege and pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? On the subject of medicinal marijuana, Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorina said that, quote, we don't understand how it interacts with other drugs, but there is information about marijuana's interactions with other medications. Prescribing information for approved versions of medicinal marijuana does include drug interaction details. However, there is less information available on medicinal marijuana compared with other medications because its legal status makes it more difficult to study in clinical trials. The prescribing information for one pill form of medicinal marijuana includes warnings about potential interactions, such as depressive effects when used with any central nervous system depressant. Another pill form warns that it should be used with caution by those also using sedatives, hypnotics, or psychoactive drugs. Studies have looked at the effect of medicinal marijuana specifically on patients undergoing cancer treatment. That was the context of Fiorina's remarks. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2009. One study published in 2007 found that an herbal tea of medicinal marijuana doesn't significantly influence how certain cancer drugs function. Another study from 2011 found that medicinal marijuana combined with a drug used to treat brain tumors produced a strong anti-tumor effect. And for HIV-AIDS patients, a 2003 study found no adverse effects on patients from medicinal marijuana. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
Depression is extremely common among adolescents in this country, but it's often hard to differentiate between typically teen angst and a clinical condition that requires more immediate intervention. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24-year-olds, a population that almost ubiquitously uses texting as a form of communication. Nancy Lublin is founder and CEO of Crisis Text Line, an instant texting service designed to encourage teens in crisis to reach out for help, which they receive instantly. All they have to do is text the numbers 741-741. So um, if you're someone who's in pain, you text us. And then the counselor on the other side is not working from a phone. They're on a screen that almost looks kind of like Facebook or Gmail. When messages come in with certain keywords in them, they automatically get tagged as high risk. So we don't take them chronologically. Um, If you're at risk for suicide, you're automatically bumped up in the queue and you're like a code red. You get flagged in our system. And the supervisor would uh, determine whether or not this person um, with the imminent harm Since she founded Crisis Texts, the word has spread like wildfire. They receive an average of 15,000 texts per day from kids experiencing everything from typical teen dilemmas, such as a fight with a boyfriend, to kids contemplating suicide. Those in most danger are encouraged to take action through a series of channels. Crisis Text Line, an instant age-appropriate intervention, available free of charge and 24-7 to give kids in crisis a lifeline and lead them to help they need. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.